Welcome to the Real Journeys of Success podcast. And yes, I'm your host, Rob Elliott, always based in Sydney, Australia. And I've gone again across the world to Philadelphia in the USA. I have a gentleman who is a Emmy-nominated TV and radio host. He was a wine expert in his early years, and now he makes his living taking, in my humble opinion, some of the most amazing photos of some of the most gorgeous-looking ladies around the world. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Phil Silverstone. How are you, buddy? You sure you got the right person on your show? I'm not sure that, that that's me, but, yeah, I'm wonderful, mate, wonderful. Look, your PR agent told me that this is what I had to read out, and if I was to get any more guests from her, this is what I had to say. Okay. All right. Okay. That, that'll work. That'll be fine. Yeah. And, uh, and, and here you've confused your audience because you've got an Englishman in Philadelphia talking to an Australian around the world. What a confusing situation this is. Mate, we can thank COVID for this these days because... Uh, <laughs> No, there's no such thing as a border when you're on Zoom. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's get Zoom as a sponsor. We should both get Zoom as a sponsor. Hello, Zoom. I'll, I'll take anyone as a sponsor these days. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly anyone, anyway. Mate, you, you, of course, you're living in Philly now, but originally, um, is that a London accent I get? It's an old London accent. I grew up, and, and Australians are probably the only people... Well, not only Australians, but uh, any country that pl plays cricket, yes. and that eliminates the United States. Uh, but I grew up uh, on a famous street that the whole world knows because of a, a little group in the 60s called the Beatles. I grew up in northwest London, northwest yes. 8, on Abbey Road, St. Yes. John's Wood. And most cricket lovers uh, will appreciate the fact that I was walking distance from Lord's Cricket Ground. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I never went. My dad used to, I was, I, I was such a disappointment. My dad was, loved sport. He begged me to go to Lord's and yep. wasn't interested. You weren't, you weren't one for cricket or playing football? No, not interested in it. Not at all, no. So what did you do then to get in trouble? Oh, like, <laughs> I was in trouble all the time. What did I do to get in trouble? I used to take things that were very valuable and break them a lot oh. when I was a little kid. I was always curious to see how things came apart, yeah. but had no intention of ever putting them back together again. So I just took them apart. And, um, and, and I remember, because it couldn't happen today, but I had a, a very sore bottom from having it smacked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, so true. So it, it, this is going to set you up for the rest of the interview. When you were in school, did you sit the front, the middle or the back of the class? Um, well, I sat in the middle, but spent, from what I remember, most of the classes outside the headmaster's uh, study, uh, <laughs> quite a distance from the class. Mate, that, that actually reminds me. I went to a, uh, a private school and I remember uh, Father Connolly looking at me one day at the start of the class, called me at the front and went, <clears throat> I'm going to give you the strap now, Rob, because you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> and I just looked at him and went, yeah, probably, so let's just get it over and done with. Do you know what that reminds me of? And I, I just got to fast forward. I am a 
passionate Jaguar car lover, and I have a 2007 XK, which is a it's a classic, but it still looks, you know, it, it still looks contemporary. And my joke is, it's almost not a joke, that the police come over to my home every morning before I leave to give me the speeding ticket. So, I mean... Can a Jag actually caught for speeding? I didn't think they were that quick. This is an XK. This is... I, I've, take, I've taken it up to 115 miles per hour. We do miles over here. Uh, it does go up. Yeah, it's the sports car. It's, it's their top-end sports car. Mine, that's why mine's a 2017. It's it's the baby sister of the Aston Martin. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, now I'm yeah. No, it's not the other ones. Not the old ones, the old men with the caps and uh, things like that. But anyway, I digress. Mate, when you eventually were kicked out of school, did you go to uni? Did you go to study? Did you just get a job at the local pub? What did you do? No, I didn't get a job at the local pub, uh, although they knew me very well in there from the age of 14. Um, I had no interest in, in, in education. I wanted to work. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, I we moved to a, we moved to North London from Northwest London to a suburb, and um, I had a passion for. I also wanted to get into show business. Actually, mm. I tried. I wanted to become a movie director, mm. and uh, I did everything I possibly could, and it was it, it was just impossible. Yeah. And the next best thing I could think of was getting to into the late swinging sixties into the fashion world. So I got into retail, um, fashion and ended up, uh, working for two of the largest privately owned men's and women's wear companies. One of which was, the man who launched Carnaby Street, and yeah. that was Irving Sellers. He had a store called Mates, and uh, and I worked. I worked all over the UK for mm. a retail group, and worked with a lot of actors and models and people who used to come in for clothes. And I loved that. Loved so in the early days. What were they like? We'll get into what they're like today. But were they pretentious? Were they just normal people? How did you handle the people who had just started to get a little bit of notoriety or be recognized down the street you know in the uk notoriety is different to where i am in the us yes. uh, i think from from what i can tell and i'm i'm you know very very stay very closely uh familiar and aware with with australians hmm. and uh, uh there, there's a few australians who've for example have who've been who've succumbed to the Californian ethics and things. So I know that they, they become high maintenance. But back in the early days, mm-hmm. uh, they were just normal people. They just happened to be on television. But yeah. they would come in and say, I'm looking for a suit or I need an outfit for this interview I'm mm-hmm. doing. And we just, they were normal. And I, I've never sort of, I've never been awestruck by celebrity. No. I just, I'm just, I just wanted to steal whatever X factor they had and see what it was so I could get it. So I needed to just, you know, treat them like anyone else. I remember listening to Billy Connolly talking one day and they said to him, why do you spend so much time in Australia? And he said, because Australia is like England. I can go out with a mate, walk down the pub and have a beer and no one will come near me. And if someone starts to hassle me, an Aussie will normally walk up and say, do you want me to knock them out? 
or do you want to come and sit with us? <clears throat> and he said, as, he said, England and Australia have this innate ability when it comes to someone who is well-known to uh, leave them alone and protect them because they're just a person doing a job. He said, that's all we are. He said, very different to America. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are for me, you know, I don't use the word celebrity. For me, uh, they're all artists. Yeah. And uh, I, I find the, the genuine passionate ones, and it's, this goes back to the early days. I learned this very early. The ones who are really passionate about their craft are just ordinary, regular people. Yeah. They haven't changed. It's the ones who start getting the the big money and they they get you know all the VIP treatment. Suddenly they they think they're above the fray, and and then I walk away from those people because they're not in it anymore for the for the craft. I think they're in it just for the the big check. So that's so how I've always been, felt. It would have been a lot easier today to be a celebrity and known than back in those days without social media and. Digital, they really had to work hard to get a name out there compared to today. You can be manufactured and be a false uh, influencer or celebrity within a month or so if you spend the money. Well, yeah, I just had a, my last Friday's show um, that goes out every week live. I had my fashion editor on with me and we were talking about uh, a new HBO series here, which I haven't seen, but... Um, it's not important. We were talking about the fact that there's these so-called influencers um, who are most, and many of them are fake and phony. They pay for their followers. Hmm. And then the, the fashion houses, for example, they see how many followers are. They're giving them money yep. and they're taking it away from people that really are influencers. But no, back in the day, I mean, you have people like I've, I've worked very closely with, a man who may or may not be known in Australia, and I'm not, I'm not f aware of whether he is or not. Mm -hmm. This is one example. One of the most famous, uh, most loved uh, personalities in the UK, one of the top singers is called Sir Cliff Richard. Yeah. And Cliff Richard is known throughout the UK and a number of countries. He was the person who introduced the world to Olivia Newton-John. True. Mm -hmm. Um, and Cliff uh, and I have done a lot together, but he will come to the States and nobody knows who he is. Now, if he had, if he would have really? launched his career now, he would be globally known, mm. but he just focused. He didn't even come across to America with the British invasion. His manager said, nah, that's not, that's not going to last very long. Just oh. stay here. Yeah. He's still the most, I mean, next to, well, I mean, I would say he's second to Paul McCartney as far as na a national, you know, a, a national figure. So. so I would say, do, you, do, do they show the Graham Norton show in, in America? Oh, yeah. So yeah. They would struggle with a lot of the guests, but that he gets on that they wouldn't know. They wouldn't, well, they wouldn't know a lot of the guests uh, and also they wouldn't get a lot of the humour. No. Uh, and I adore the Graham Norton show because it's so unlike what you see in America. 
you know, the guests come out with the booze and, yes. uh, and the language, yes. and they're just natural. And he has three of them at a time or four of them at a time. And it really, he's supposed to be, I've, I've had a lot of people on my show who have been on the Graham Norton show. He's supposed to be an absolute delight, takes yes. them out to dinner, makes them comfortable. The same as you're doing with me. You're going to be taking me out for dinner tonight, you know, and... Uh... <laughs> I might not love to. <laughs> Buddy, you, you can hear in your voice, you love your passion, you love your art and that. But before you got into what you do today, you were known as one of the, I suppose, the world's best-known wine critics, talkers. You, are, you did wine tastings on Virgin Plains. Yeah. Well, how did you get into the wine industry? Well, um, very simple. It was a very simple segue, as they say in uh, show business. Um, <laughs> I, when, when, I was, uh, when I was 23, when I was 24, I suppose, yeah. well, I was 1776, whenever it was, 1776, I, I had cousins in California, yeah. and I have cousins in California, and I wanted to always wanted to go to the States. So I decided to take a trip, saved all my money from menswear. Not a lot, but I saved it. I got a, a flight out to California and stayed with my cousins in Los Angeles for three weeks, which was nice because uh, there was quite, there's several of them there. So they all put me up for a few days and they treated me nicely. Yeah. And in those days, there weren't, I, I swear there weren't that many English people in the States because, yeah. I mean, everywhere I went, they went, oh my God, are you German? You know, they they always asked if I was German first. And Look, every time I, I've been to the States, they say, you English? And that's probably one of the <laughs> biggest uh, offensive thing you can say to an Australian. So, <laughs> No, they say, no, they, the, the standard line was, are you from Germany? And I always used to say, I used to become extraordinarily English. I said, oh, no, no, we were on the other side. No, no, no. <laughs> But um, no, anyway, so I, I went to California and uh, went to Venice Beach and I was mm. looking at everyone in California was tall, a little bit old. No, they were about my age. Uh, all the women were tall and blonde and skinny. And uh, I left, came back to London, drizzling, horrible day, went to my hairdresser who, who used to cut my hair in her home. She'd originally been my mother's hairdresser. She left the salon and she used to cut my hair in her home. And she said, how was, how was America? And I said, oh, it was fantastic. I said, beautiful young ladies there. And she said, oh, I've got a cousin here from, I don't know, Philadelphia. I don't know where that is. I think it's, I don't know. She said, well, do you want to meet her? So I said, yeah, give her my phone number. If she calls, I'll, I'll meet her. And it was a blind date. I, I had the date and my wife was clearly blind. And um, we met and I gave up my country for the woman I loved. And, and so Facebook, so she didn't know your history. She didn't know my history. She didn't know my record. All my family had been in jail. I was done on uh, grievous bodily harm and everything. But no, I came over to the States. My retail background in menswear was perfect because mm. Her father, who was a much older man, um, you know, for that age group, to, it's almost a grandfather age, he had a liquor store, yeah. a wine and spirit shop in, in southern New Jersey, which is a state over from Pennsylvania, 
where Philadelphia is. And uh, we decided to get married. And he said, come and work in the store. Yeah. And, you know, I used to come home from work every night, literally every night. I decided I always wanted to be cultured. And I liked, I liked culture. And I used to come home every night on the tube, on the subway, um, and get off. There was an off license again. I don't know the terms in the in Australia. Some are similar, but you, the, you know the the the, the, the wine shop. Yeah. And uh, I used to go in. I used to spend fifty pence, which uh, is, I suppose, in in American money, the equivalent of uh, I don't know a dollar, less than a dollar, yeah. uh, and picked up a bottle of uh, red uh, French South Southern French uh, Plonk. Yes, and I come home every night and had a glass of wine, and I started to really enjoy it. And then her father had a liquor store, and he said, "Well, you know, you got any interest? Because my manager's leaving. Would you like to come here and learn the business?" And I did, and within five years, I took it from a. It was just, it had rubbish. I mean, it, it sold. It was catering to people that knew nothing. They they wanted the cheapest wine, the cheapest beer. And I had people coming in from other states and arranging to meet me and buying two, three hundred dollar mm. bottles of wine. And I loved it. I've, the art, the art of wine. I just love the romance. Yeah. You know, that's so because the liquor store wasn't in a good area. It wasn't. I mean, it was a lovely area, but it wasn't in uh, what I was used to. You know, I went from being in in the most exciting parts of London to being in a, you know, in a not, ple not great area. And I used to get to the store at six o'clock in the morning, work till 10 at night because yeah. I was the son-in-law and I worked six days a week. So this was my, this was my uh, output. So it wasn't, you know, a few years later, you've, you've, you've transitioned again, like you seem to love to do into an Emmy nominated TV and radio host. Well, when I came to another leap of faith or was that someone? No, no. Cause when I grew up, as I said, I always wanted to get into, I always enjoyed making some sort of TV or radio. I mean, I always had a tape recorder. Um, I was always interviewing people just, you know, as a little kid, nobody took me seriously, tried to get into it. And when I came to the States and I heard people saying, Oh, I like the accent. Yeah. Uh, and of course it was sharper then because I'd just arrived. I thought I might be able to do something here. So while I was working in wine, um, I had some opportunities. I thought, let's, this is a boring world, but yeah. I have my own philosophy about wine. I don't like people spending more than $10 on a bottle. Yeah. A lot of the snobs insisted on spending more than 200 I thought, but I like, my, yeah. I like my idea because under $10, you can get a nice bottle of wine. You can. And why can't you put ice cubes in a bottle, in a glass of wine? And why can't you put a straw in a bottle of wine or drink it straight out of the bottle? Hmm. So I went to local radio station and I choreographed being in the right place at the right time. And I ended up being on uh, a classical radio station twice hmm. a day, which was a perfect audience doing features twice a day. And I was on the public television station, PBS in Philadelphia, which was a similar network 
And on Saturdays, they have half a dozen cooking shows throughout the whole afternoon. Awesome. And they put in my little segments. I, we filmed little segments between each one. And then a book followed and then column followed. And then I was started talking, you know, to groups and, and then, you know, I, I, I enjoyed what I was doing. I was getting notoriety. I was on some national TV shows. So I went to Virgin Atlantic in New York and pitched them the idea. I said, you've got a lounge on your flight in the first class, the upper class. What about if I do a wine tasting for the people in there? And it somehow snowboarded. I think they tossed back an idea. And the next thing, I was flying to London every month uh, because it was between uh, New York and London. And I was getting a celebrity and coming back on the flight with a celebrity, either from the wine world or yeah. from entertainment. We got a lot of publicity and travel and leisure magazines. And, you know, it snowballs once you've got an idea. Uh, and of course, again, there, there wasn't, if, had I done it now and had that amount of exposure, um, it would have been even bigger. It was, it was modest, but it was fun. So you, to sum up, you'd probably say that you, you completely backed yourself and just said, I'm going to do this and no one's going to stop me. That, that was it. Um, I never took, I mean, what happened, I think, in my career yeah. uh, was, was, was the same as in my marriage uh, and, and the same as in my childhood. I, I nag. Yeah. I'm, I'm like something that a dog, a dog leaves on, on, on the side of the road and you walk in and it takes forever to get rid of it. Every time they picked up the phone, it was me at the other end. And in the end, they said, oh, all right. Bang. Yeah. Yeah. So where did the photography come into it? I, going back to London again, I, I used to sit. It's funny how all these things come into play, but I used to stand in the morning yeah. waiting for the train to come in to take me into town. And I used to look at all these ads along the platform. Yeah. And I remember seeing lots of fashion ads, and I used to love them. I used to think, God. And, of course, growing up in the UK in the 60s, uh, it was the first time that fashion photographers became as famous as the people they were photographing. In fact, yeah. models were unknown until the 60s. In the past, the model was just like a mannequin they didn't have a name then suddenly there's twiggy and there's shrimps and then there's all these names and suddenly you're hearing about a man called duffy and a man called david bailey and i fell in love with this whole immersion of of you know it's 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 all art and it's all entertainment so i was always afraid to to dabble in it because i didn't have a clue and then about four years ago um, I had a car accident, which was quite bad. Somebody drove into the back of me while I was stuck in traffic, but yeah. they were texting. And the next thing I know, I'm having back surgery. My spine is all damaged and I'm having bits put into it. And I had concussion and I, and I, I was faced with 18 months of learning, you know, yeah. getting back on my feet literally. And I thought, Let's get a camera. Let's 
you know, this is the time. This is, if I'm going to learn, let's do it now. Cause I'm not going to sit around all day long. Yeah. And that's when I picked up a camera and it, I, I'm really, dis- I'm really f- frustrated because I think I should have picked up a camera when I left school. Yeah. Um, because I, I, even though I've, I never particularly feel that what I do is any good. I do look at the photographs and get feedback from people. My photos aren't, aren't amazing, but they're interesting. And, um, and so I am obsessed. In fact, I've just traded a camera uh, just on eBay and I'm excited. I've changing my equipment and I'm just, I pushed myself. So I learned I'm on, you know, thankfully we have uh, YouTube yeah. So I learned who I liked on YouTube. And, and even to this day, from 10 o'clock at night till three in the morning, I watch five hours of YouTube, just checking what people are doing. Yeah. And, and that's how I got into it. I got into it because I, I wanted to, and I have more passion for that than anything I've ever done. So why do you prefer black and white over color? That's a nice question. And I'm, I'm, that's flattering that you would notice that. Um, I should say to you, they're all colour. You may get you put your glasses on, mate, but <laughs> I was slow there. I'm sorry, I was so slow there. I think black and white is is magical. Firstly, again, because it reminds me of of a time long gone. But also, uh, I feel and and I and I think I may have got this idea from some of the more uh, prominent photographers of years gone by. But I think that when I look at a photograph, it's the same as why I would watch in my case, uh, as I did the other day, uh, I watched, I came across a film with Peter Sellers called the wrong arm of the law. It was, I think it was 1961, 62, had every British actor imaginable, including an Aussie who was very famous in the UK called Bill Kerr. And um, anyway, and I'm watching the film and I'm not so interested in the story. I'm interested in the cars and the fashion and just seeing the era that I grew up in captured. And what made it, more impressive for me is like most films in those days, they couldn't afford color. It's black and white color dates. I think color dates very quickly. Black and white remains almost contemporary. Even if the clothes change, they can still somehow fit in with the, the present era because people are continually bringing out clothes from the past. But I think, it's the difference between t- color and black and white to me is the difference between watching television and listening to the radio in these days of podcast, but listening only black and white allows you to imagine a little bit more color tells the whole story. So that's why I find black and white more fascinating. It makes you think what color is that? And you notice the different shades and you yeah, notice times. more in black and white. I was looking at some of your photos the other day and uh, yeah, noticed, don't you have a life? Don't you have yeah, a life to live? Yes. What, what are you well, doing? Mate, yeah, it was raining here in Australia, so you oh, know, okay. get that often. Right. Not like okay. England where you used to rain. Uh, <laughs> and what I did notice is because you do mostly uh, take photos of lovely looking ladies, that 
compared to the colour ones you see of other people, black and white seems to bring out the natural beauty of a lot of them. Yeah, I, I, it, it's very interesting that you should say that because I have one of the models I have. Uh, she is strikingly Irish looking, which... Red hair. Is, red hair, freckles, yeah. blue eyes, very tall, very thin. She does, she's, she's very proud of her Irish heritage. Mm. She does lots of dances and things she belongs to. Anyway, everyone who photographs her gets the full body. And she's not, uh, one thing I want to point out, and, and this is not sexist or misogynistic no. or anything, uh, I do not like photographing anybody, but I'm picking out women here because I, I think the female body is absolutely the most beautiful creature on this planet. Yes. And next to, next to the leaping uh, spider, a jumping spider, which I think is stunning. The two for me yeah. are the most extraordinarily beautiful creatures. I hate men. They're ugly. But um, so everyone gets, and she's not, I don't like women who have Botox. I'm talking about models now. Yes. Botox lips and implants in their breasts. I don't, to me, that means that I, I want natural. Yes. So uh, Law, the model, is natural, totally very skinny, uh, which isn't important to me. I don't care what your body size is. Beauty yeah. is not visually not there. But in her case, she's a stunner. Yeah. And she gets so upset with me because everyone takes this full-length photo of this red-headed, blue-eyed girl, and I take profiles of her face in black and white. Yeah. Because I think, I think she has the most beautiful face, and I look for some, I look for beauty in in different ways. And and the black and white, you look at the black and white, so now you don't see the color, and you think, does she have red hair? Look, she's got freckles. I bet she's red haired. I wonder what she looks like. Like you know, think the problem that we have on Instagram, which is where I post all my photos, and I'm going to say my name is Philip, the two L's, Silverstone, and there's a W in the middle. That's oh. how you get to me, Philip W. Silverstone, on Instagram. Um, the problem with our modern world, now I sound very old, but the problem with our model, uh, uh, current world, and I'm, I'm also uh, uh, to blame here, is you go on Instagram, you go, and you, it's like flipping cards. You don't stop like you do in a museum and look at each photo. So when I put a photo up, I'm hoping somebody just might look at it and stop for a moment and just say, wow, that's different. And that's, that's why I do it. I, I forget what the question was now. I do ramble. I'm sorry. Look, look it's incredibly interesting because I, I, uh, one comment I will make in, a lot of people think just because you comment about a woman's body, or something like that, it's got to be misogynistic, sexist, or something else, where, to me, you're looking at somebody who's truly beautiful. Why can't you say it? Well, can I t I'll tell you something? Because beautiful I, and take... other stuff is totally different. Totally. And I'm going to take this a step farther because um, I do I, – I have several uh, young women who I photograph uh, – uh, boudoir photos, mm. you know, in lingerie. Yeah. And, and this has proved to be very, very beneficial for them. Um, unfortunately, uh, I've met several who have had wretched childhoods. 
parents are on crack cocaine and uh, have gone to prison, uh, then they end up in um, in a brutal marriage where they have been uh, abused physically and mentally. And a lot of these women, uh, when they're abused, uh, I, I, I think physical sometimes is more torturous than uh, excuse me, mental is more torturous than physical. Um, I had this one uh, young woman who became a very close friend, mm. um, and she was gorgeous, but she wouldn't accept it. And we were talking, and she said, I, I wouldn't mind trying, you know, the boudoir. And we did that. Mm. And, and then I did something that I never do. I had to come into my studio, where we are here, and I said, I want you to sit down and this is before COVID, take a look at these. She burst into tears. She burst into tears. She said, oh, my God, I am beautiful, aren't I? I said, I told you you are. Yeah. And, and I've also, I'm working on a project, which I won't go into now, but it's a very personal project, and I'm doing nudes. Yeah. And I have very, very strict policies about this. When I do nudes or lingerie, uh, the expressions have to be kind of blank, distant. You have to, I want the models to think about something other than what they're doing because mm. the tendency would be for a lot of people to mm. have an expression on their face which yeah. could be enticing. It, it can, there's a thin line between, between sexual and art, yes. and I'm very strict. If they smile, I say, no good. No smile. I don't want that pose because that pose doesn't. I want them to look strong. I want them to look independent. I want them to basically be putting their finger up at men and say, I'm comfortable in who I am and yeah. you've, you've got to earn the right to know me. I, so, I, I, I know an artist who does a lot of, uh, I don't know the terminology for, the, for the, what she paints, but they are new paintings. And when she started out, and she's a she's a very nice looking young lady, and she's not that young these days, but uh, she said I ended up having to get someone to take photos of me nude so I could put them up and then paint them because a lot of the people that I wanted to paint were too were very uncomfortable being that. But then when I've spoken and met models myself, they said they they got nothing. They said, oh, we get a gear off walk around the back of a. Uh, a fashion show, it doesn't worry us because it just becomes part of the job. But it's real and they're beautiful people. They're very comfortable. You've been through, and this is one of the main reasons why I really wanted to speak to you today, is you've been from the 60s in England. You've gone through into Philadelphia. You've seen post-COVID, pre-COVID. You've seen post-Facebook, pre-Facebook and all the social media. Now that we're starting to come out of this pandemic, when it comes to fashion, when it comes to uh, people's persona on uh, social media or in the net or in digital world, do you see that the days of the fake going and we're going back to real people with real beauty, both inside and outside, and not manufactured brands rather than people are actually going to sit back and go, well, I like that because it looks good on me, rather than that's because the influencer from America told me I should wear it? And that, that's that's a, a brilliant question because and, and it's a topic that as i say i've just been i personally have been uh, focused on to use a bad pun from what i do but i was having this discussion with my my fashion 
editor friend uh, who's on my show and uh, once a month. <clears throat> and we are seeing a lot of changes. The, the, fas- the fashion world is changing in many respects. For example, you have, um, and I can't think of his last name now, and I'm ashamed of myself, but there's a man by the name of Peter, can't think of his last name. He's a fabulous fashion photographer in Australia. Mm. And I watch his live show every week. And I just men- mentally, uh, the brain's frozen. But anyway, um, he's saying that his business has gone down 80% due to covid but also the fashion magazines are putting their money rather than putting it into mag excuse me not fashion magazines uh fashion designers Hmm. um and fashion i'm talking about everything from rolex watches to you know haute couture clothes and others are putting their money into these uh these Instagram women who can earn, depending on who they are from 250 U S dollars up to a million U S dollars per photograph. I think I'm in the take. I mean, I, if if I had the body right now, I'd do it. So, so my point is that that money was going into magazines and those magazines were paying photographers. Yes. That may have to change uh, because the money isn't there at the moment. I think what's going to have to ha- what w- w- with I think what we're looking at is that firstly, um, clothing is going to have to be more instantaneous. Remember also, you know, you ask me a question like that; it's not a simple one. No. You have we have London Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week, which I think we've just gone through. Uh, fashion weeks all over the world now they have gone uh they have you can't do them in person so they they you know they've they've had them on on uh uh, online and um that's saving them money i I think there's going to be a lot of tightening of the belts and i think that the money is going to probably go into less expensive clothes more affordable clothes um and that means that people will go out and start buying probably less clothes, more like it'll go back to what it was maybe in the 50s or 60s. I think in women's case anyway, I think they're going to go out and they're going to buy maybe five or six sensible outfits, and then they're going to build on those with less expensive clothes to make it look like they're changing. Because the economy has completely gone. The high street shops are closing and going out of business. Yeah. It's all down to, you know, Amazon and all these companies yeah. online. So I think they'll go out and they'll, they'll say, you know, just just let me. I, I know this will go with 10 things. That will go with 10 things. Yeah. They'll have that. And then they'll just go out. And you can mix and match expensive and cheap. Um, and I think that's the way that it's going to go. There is going to be a major change. As far as the influencers go, um, the, I think that we are going to see a lot of them disappear. But, uh, it, it, but on the other hand, will their followers 
do the followers, I mean, I'll, I'll throw the question back because this is such a complicated question, even though it sounds like a simple one. The, the question is, are the people following these influencers, following them because of the clothes they wear, or following them because they are living or they think they're living, they think the influence of living a better lifestyle. So they are living vicariously through those. And just to make matters worse, most of these influencers are not in the countries they think they're in. And I'll just close with this thought for you, because this sort of is, is food for thought. And we had a laugh on my show the other day. Um, the guy who's made this, this series about the influencers went to a home improvement store and bought a white oval toilet seat. Yes. And he took it back to his studio and he put it alongside a model, one of these influencers, and he set up a few other things. It looked like she was looking out of a plane window. Yeah. And everyone thought she was on a plane. She wasn't. She was sitting next to a white $20 toilet seat. So... It's like the people who hire the cars and then have their photos taken in front of them and people think that's that's their car. <clears throat> Mate, I'm going to wind this up, but one last question. Think back and you, you say it's maybe, I'm going to say this, you're back in Abbey Road and you walk down the street and you see your uh, 20-year-old self. He looks up at you and doesn't know who you are and he says to you, what advice would you give me, Phil? looking back over your absolutely amazing career so far, and it's still a long way to go, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Well, first, I'd smack him over the chops and tell him to pull his socks up and don't be such a bloody idiot. <laughs> I, I would tell him what I tell everyone who is that age, find a passion, yeah. a real, true passion, and grab onto it and never let it go. Mate, that is just absolutely awesome advice. It's been a hoot listening to you, mate. Uh, you stay safe. Uh, keep taking those lovely photos. I do, do like following you on Instagram. I will put the links up to your website and your Instagram in the show notes when we go live. Uh, thank you so much. And